0: Well, thank you. Good morning. It is wonderful to be back here in Woodside. I want to begin um, firstly, just with a huge thank you to you all. We are deeply grateful to you for your support, uh, practically, uh, financially, uh, and most importantly, prayerfully. Uh, We are just so encouraged that here in New York, across the big ocean, miles away people pray for our little church in Dundee a place where most of you couldn't identify on a map um, and we are so grateful that you have loved us well and so thank you from the bottom of our hearts uh, and thank you in Christ as Matthew said there is my joy to preach God's word to you this morning from the book of Esther but before we do that I'm going to pray and then we will get stuck in together let me wet my whistle <laughs> before we go Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Lord, we ask as we come to consider this book of Esther, a book that never mentions you at all, that you would help us see Christ in this book, that you would show us that you are everywhere in this book. In fact, that you are not mentioned in this book in order to show us where you are when it appears you're nowhere. Lord, help us right now, we ask. Grant us grace, grant us ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to love Christ and wills to obey him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, so as I said, we are in the book of Esther. It is a book famous, of course, for never mentioning God, one of two. The other, of course, being Song of Solomon, Those two never mentioned God by name, and this book, of course, does not either. And because of that, a lot of people find this book a confusing book. Where is the gospel in this book? Where is God in this book? Where is Christ in this book? And what I want to do this morning is just unfold that. I want to start quickly with a quote from one of my favorite authors. It's not a Christian author, it is in fact Charles Dickens. He said these words in his great book, A Tale of Two Cities, he said it was the best of times It was the worst of times. It was an age of wisdom and it was an age of foolishness. It was an epoch of belief and it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light and it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope and a winter of despair. We had everything before us and we had nothing before us. We were all going directly to heaven and in fact we were all going direct the other way. That's how he starts that wonderful book. And what he is doing there is painting this fact that our lives are turbulent. They are full of ups and downs, highs and lows, triumph and trial. Often these things come right on top of each other. We are, most of us, fairly good at handling good times. But trial, difficulty, hardship has a habit. Of exposing us. It confuses us. It throws us off balance. It causes us to question God's goodness. To doubt his love. When tragedy strikes. When difficulty raises its head. When persecution comes. When pandemics fall. We can feel like God has abandoned us. That he is nowhere to be found. At the exact moment when we, of course, feel our need for him most. Physically. Those famous words of David. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance? From my words of groaning? My God, I cry to you by day and by night. And you do not answer. And I have no rest. This feeling is not foreign to the believer. It's a feeling we find expressed often throughout the scriptures. And yet for many of us, we make it foreign. And think it is foreign to the scriptures. The book of Esther exists to remind us of God's sovereign grace and goodness even when we can't understand what's going on, when we feel alone, when we think he is far from saving us, the truth is he is ruling and reigning for the good of his people and the glory of his name. You ever doubt the sovereignty of the Lord? We sang William Cooper's great hymn just there, and of course, here it is quoted in my sermon, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, behind the hardships of life. For those who are in Christ, He hides a smiling face. Right? What we're going to do this morning is tackle this book in five, four and a half parts. Firstly, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a brief story recap of the book of Esther, just to keep clear in our minds the tale. So that you can see that I'm not going to pull the points I'm making out of thin air. Anytime someone does that, ignore them. Right? Anytime they're just giving you their opinion and you can't see it in the text, it's not worth the paper it's not printed on. Right? So I'm going to show you the text, the story. Next we're going to consider the hidden hand of God. This is the main and great theme of the book of Esther. God's sovereign grace and goodness in the midst of trial and difficulty. Third, we're going to think about our part. Or Esther's part in this case. Man's responsibility. The fact that God is sovereign does not give us a buy with regards to action or with regards to obedience. And finally, we're going to take these last two points together because this is where we find the gospel in Esther. We're going to look at the fact that God will destroy evil and in doing so will always save his people. Okay? God's judgment and salvation. Uh, revealing His glory. So that's our points. Story recap: the hidden hand of God, our responsibility, and finally the gospel in the Book of Esther. So let's quickly have a recap of this book. Chapter one through two eighteen really begin the story, and they set the scene through us or for us with what you could call booze banquets and beauty pageants. Right, that is how the story of Esther starts: booze banquets, beauty pageants. Artaxerxes or King Xerxes is celebrating his own power, the scale of his empire. At this point, this party has been going on for a while and everyone is quite hammered, Right to put it plainly. After days of feasting and drinking, the king is bragging about the wealth and power and splendor of his own name and of all that he owns. And he decides he wants to display that by showing off the beauty of Queen Vashti and on the seventh day when the king was feeling good with wine that just means hammered right? Arshurius commanded Memun, Bithva, Harbona, Bigtha, Abgatha I'm going to mutilate these names don't, don't worry about it Zethar and Karkas the seven eunuchs who personally served him to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown and that by the way means just her royal crown nothing else clothing wise at all Right, he wants to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. And Queen Vashti refuses to come at the king's command that was delivered by the eunuchs. And the king becomes furious, and his anger burned within him. So, what sets up and precipitates Esther's introduction is Vashti's right refusal. To come naked before the king. No husband has the right to command his wife to parade naked before other men. Her refusal, however, enrages Xerxes and results in her banishment from court and the loss of her position. The fact that she is not killed probably means that she was the daughter of another king. And it would have been politically dangerous to do so. So she is simply moved aside. However, time passes and eventually the king... Wishes a new wife or concubine, and so the great Persian beauty contest kicks off. Right? A contest that Esther will win. Our text tells us that she was taken to the king in his palace. For an approval, he placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in Vashti's place. So, this is our setup for the story booze, banquets, beauty pageants. We move into the next section and what we see is that Esther's victory and elevation to queen means that in God's providence, Mordecai, her uncle, is in the right place at the right time to overhear a plot to assassinate King Xerxes and he is ultimately able to foil this plot. This plot, however, results in chaos in the royal court. The turmoil of this assassination plot results in the rise and exaltation of, for want of a better phrase, the villain of the book, Haman the Agite. He is honored by all people except Mordecai, who refuses to bow down to him, which results ultimately in Haman's plot to destroy the Jews. Now, Haman is a descendant of Agite or, or Ag, the king of the Amalekites. Mordecai is a descendant of Kesh of the tribe of Benjamin, the same tribe as King Saul. If you know your Bible, you'll know that there is bad blood between Israel and the Amalekites since Amalek had opposed Israel during their journey into the Promised Land. Years later, King Saul fails to follow the Lord's command to wipe out the Amalekites and now, centuries later, that failure is coming back to haunt the people of God in a big way. They are now threatened with absolute destruction through this man. Chapter 4 through 8 are the meat of the book of Esther. The Jews, God's people, are in grave danger. They are due to be destroyed. And yet when it seems that the Lord is asleep at the wheel of From the worldly perspective, we see that he has, in fact, been moving the pieces into place in order to deliver his people and destroy his enemies. Esther is in place for just such a time as this. She is informed of the threat. She calls this fast. The people pray, and then she takes bold, potentially life-threatening action, approaching the king. She receives favour and puts her plan to save her people into action. During her first banquet, she sets Haman up. He leaves thinking he is on top. His hatred of Mordecai leads him to the building of a massive gallows in order to kill his enemy and publicly display his victory. That night, it so happens that King Xerxes can't sleep. He is greatly bothered, distressed by the events that had surrounded the attempt on his life. He wants to know who saved him and why this man wasn't honoured. By morning, Mordecai is revealed as Xerxes' saviour and he is exalted and honoured and now Haman knows the gig is up. At Esther's second banquet, Esther reveals his plot and eventually Haman ends up swinging From his own gallows. And all his possessions are given over to Mordecai. The Lord rescues his people through the destruction and judgment of his enemies. And then in chapter 9 through 10 we see the salvation goes to all God's people. The Jews are saved. Their salvation accomplished as the enemies of God and the enemies of the Jewish people are crushed And the book finishes with God's gracious salvation salvation being celebrated and memorialized. So that's the story of the book of Esther. God sovereignly orders all things for the good of his people, for their salvation, for the destruction of his enemies, for the glory of his own name. And that's not bad for a book that never bothers to mention him by name. It's fairly impressive. Derek Prime writes this. He says... What we are seeing in the book is Satan's activity, traceable throughout the Bible. His tracks may be discerned again and again through various aliases he employs. In this case, it's that of Haman. Satan, the enemy of our souls, is endeavouring to destroy the Jews, the people through whom the seed, the Messiah, is to be born into the world. He wants to make null and void the promise of God. He wants to... Take away the hope of a redeemer. The same enmity that inspired Haman also inspires Herod to give orders to kill all boys in Bethlehem and its vicinities two years and under. In accordance with the time Herod learns from the Magi. As Jesus explains to the Samaritan woman, salvation is from the Jew. God, however, is committed to preserving his people. So that salvation might go out into the ends of the earth. Even though they had failed him so often. It is because of this truth. His promise of hope to the world. That the salvation of the Jewish nation at the time of Esther is so important. God's protection of his people is the protection of the offspring of the woman Through which all hope comes. This is the book of Esther. So that is the story recap. I want to spend the rest of our time just drawing out the major themes of this book and trying to land the lessons they teach. The first lesson, the great lesson of the book of Esther is to see the hidden hand of God. The book of Esther, as I said, is famous for never mentioning God. I had recently, and I'm going to name drop and it's going to be like a clang here, the great privilege of driving about Dr. John Piper when he visited Scotland. And I told him I was preaching this book that weekend. And he said this in the car. He said, the author of Esther intentionally doesn't mention God so that we would learn that even though you can't see him, he's everywhere. He's all over the book. Because he's everywhere. All the time. In the darkest moment, it is easy to feel alone. To feel abandoned. When it is all on top of you. When your family seems to be disintegrating around you when the phone rings in the middle of the night with tragic news, when the shock diagnosis lands, when you feel so low, so flat, that all you want to do is hide, to pull the duvet cover back over your head and sleep away the sadness, when your heart is sickened and hope is snatched away, in those moments of trouble and trial, it is easy to doubt, it is those times we cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? What are you doing? Why me? How could you let this happen? Maybe I'm just kidding myself on. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he isn't there. Books like Esther, the story of Joseph, the book of Ruth, the tale of Job, the life of Christ and his apostles are recorded in such detail painful, crushing detail at times in order to remind us that trial and tribulation are the norm of God's people. And it reminds us that he is in control and loves us in the midst of trial. They do this by showing us life, real life through the long lens in order for us to learn to interpret the now and the beginning in light of its ending. They show us what Paul means when he explains, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It shows us what it means when the proverb writer says that the law is cast in the lap and every decision is from the Lord. Those are comforting truths if you understand the end and if you interpret now in light of the end. That... Proverb is only a comfort if we learn to trust that the Lord is good. Seeing the big picture helps us recognize God's infinite love and his care for us. Esther shows us this as we watch the Lord order chaos in order to bless and save his own. What's the application here? What do we need to know here? But we need to know that the Lord is trustworthy. It's a warning from one of my favorite smart dead guys. C.H. Spurgeon. He's asked what it means to believe that God is sovereign. And he says this. He says, I hear one say, well, sir, you seem to be a fatalist. And he says, no, far from it. There is just this difference between fate and providence. Fate is a blind thing. And providence is full of eyes. Fate is blind, a thing that must be. It is an arrow shot from a bow that will fly onward but hath no true target. Not so with providence. Providence is full of wisdom. There is a design in everything, an end to be answered. All things are working together and working together for good. They are not done because they must be done. They are done because there is a reason for it. It is not only that the thing is but that the thing must be because it is right and good and should be. God has not arbitrarily marked out the world's history. He is an eye to the architecture of all things of the perfection of all things. When he marks out the aisles of history and places the pillars of events he is building the great tapestry of time. He is controlling and ordering things and you are therefore secure in his hand. He loses none. He keeps hold. Let's move on to our next point. This idea of human responsibility. Esther, like the book of Ruth, shows us clearly that God is sovereign. He is the ruler of all things. He is governing history for the good of his people and the glory of his name. However, Esther also forefronts In the passage we saw and read earlier, our responsibility. The threat that Haman presents to the people of God requires action. And the Lord had uniquely placed Esther and Mordecai in a position to intervene, and therefore they absolutely must do so. Esther summons one of the king's eunuchs who attended her, dispatches him to Mordecai to learn why he is out in the street crying and wailing, he goes to see Mordecai. He learns the truth of what is happening. He learns that Haman has basically bought the slaughter of God's people. He is given the decree and the time that this destruction will happen. The eunuch returns to Esther, explains all that has happened. And commands her to approach the king. To implore his favour. To plead with him personally for her people. Mordecai's response to Esther is given. Esther responds again. Tell Mordecai all the royal officials know. That one law applies. To every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard who has not been summoned. The death penalty. Unless the king extends grace, unless he extends his scepter and allows that person to live. And I've not been summoned to appear before the king for 30 days. Esther's response is reported to Mordecai and Mordecai tells the messenger to go and reply like this to Esther. Don't think that you will escape our fate just because you're in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your family will be destroyed. Who knows, perhaps you have come to your position for just such a time as this. Esther responds, go assemble the people, all the Jews who can be found and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three nights and three days and my servants and I will do the same. After that, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther commanded. These verses show us that Mordecai is absolutely confident in God's deliverance of his people. Right? We see that. He is confident the Lord will save his own. He is utterly certain that God is in control, and yet... This fact does not cause him to let Esther off the hook. No, it drives him to demand right action from her. You see that? It drives him to demand right action. A proper understanding of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God will always drive us to right action rather than idle irresponsibility or complacency. When you understand that God is in control and has ordered all things, you understand that you're where you are because he put you there for that time and you are intended to obey him where you are God is sovereign, he will save his people but he has put you where you are just as Esther was put where she she is and she must act she is raised up for such a time as this which is precisely what Esther does she calls for the fast and the people pray and then she steps out in faith she takes decisive, bold Risky, life-threatening, obedient action. James, of course, says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says, I have faith, but do not have works? Can such faith save them? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is that? In the same way, Faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. Now, some will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe that and they at least have the good sense to shudder. Senseless person. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? This is the message God is sovereign, He's in control. You believe this, good, now do your job. That's what he says here. Do what you're called to, obey. Faith is shown by our actions. It is shown by our work. This text reminds us once again, talk's cheap. It's cheap. Jesus tells us we are known by fruit. I don't care if you are the king of theologians. No fruit, dead in sin. It's as simple as that. If the people had been spared, Jim Hamilton says, by some other means, and Esther had refused her mission. Sorry, this is Spurgeon. And Esther had refused her mission. As long as there lived a Jew, they would have kept no feast of Purim, but would have cursed her memory. We should consider, says Spurgeon, why the Lord has brought us where we are. Because he brought you here for such a time as this. We often think that the idea of the sovereignty of God and our responsibility are contradictory concepts. However, Scripture never treats them like that. The Scripture teaches that God is absolutely sovereign and you are absolutely responsible for your actions. This quote from Spurgeon is dead right. God's sovereignty should move us prayerfully to consider why he has brought us to the places he's brought us. And then give us the confidence to act in appropriate, obedient faith. Right, and that brings us to our final kind of point. Where's the gospel in all this? Where is the good news in Esther? Well, it's this God's glory and salvation through judgment. When I wrote this sermon, I sat down with an intern at the time, and he asked me just this question where is Jesus in this book? Where's the gospel? And it's a fair question if you're unfamiliar with the book, combined with the fact that it doesn't mention the Lord. Where's the gospel? You tell me. I'm sure Matt tells you that scripture, the gospel's found in every book, of every page of the scripture. Where's it here? Well, here it is. In Esther, the seed of the serpent Haman, who descends from those Saul should have put under the ban, is at enmity with the seed of the woman, Mordecai, an exiled Jew finds his only defence in an orphaned girl whom he has taken into his care. And out of the mouths of babes and infants, God establishes his strength. He uses the weak to bring down the strong. In God's providence, Mordecai and Esther, like Joseph before them, are Jews raised to prominence in a foreign court. And in a surprising reversal against all expectation, Haman is hanged on the gallows he built for Mordecai and Esther secures for the Jews the right to defend themselves. Here what we see at the end of this book is the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head. Judged for covenant infidelity and exile, the Jewish people are saved through the judgment of their enemies for the glory of God. And that is the gospel. Right? God raises up a leader, a chosen leader to save his people. This leader faces death in order to save His people by crushing their great enemy. There's the gospel. Esther here faces the wrath of the king in order to deliver her people from the wrath of the king. Just as God provided Esther to deliver his people, he has provided Jesus to save us. He, like Esther, faced the wrath of the king. And instead of finding favor, he earned crushing wrath in our place he took that wrath that we deserved jesus died in our stead and in doing so he was crushed and so were our great enemies satan sent death in the grave the book of esther like the rest of the scriptures is a glorious technicolor display of the fact that the lord for certain will always crush evil Our God is good and holy and righteous and he will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished. The scriptures remind us again and again that it is appointed for man to die once and face judgment. And here's the truth. It's a clean fact. All of us in this room will one day stand before the judge of all the earth. You will give an account for your life. And that judge requires perfection. And you, like me, are as far from perfection as it gets. On that day, your only hope will be plead the perfections of another or face punishment that you deserve. Plead the perfections of Christ in your place or receive the wrath of God. If you are here today and you know not Jesus, understand this, you are in grave danger. even if it's all going great, even if you think you've got life figured out, even if it is, as we would say in Glasgow, Kushti, and you've got it all under control, one day you will find yourself just like Haman. Under God's wrath. You didn't see it coming. You couldn't stop it happening. God is not mocked, and all men reap what they sow. It's a fact. And I beg you, hear this. I beg you, take it seriously. Recognize the danger you are in. Understand that hell is in fact hot and eternity is in fact forever. And if you are outside Christ, you go there. And it's inescapable. It may sound hard and it may sound harsh because it is. But it's also just and righteous. And I'm telling you this because I don't want you to go there. I'm begging you, flee for sin, flee from self-righteousness, repent and run, run to Jesus for safety and salvation. The fact is, God has provided a glorious saviour for us, his beautiful son. And this son has conquered all our enemies. He has provided righteousness. He has taken our punishment. He has even defeated our final enemy. Death itself died in his resurrection. That means for those of us here who are in him today, you're safe in all circumstances. You understand that? That's what this book's here to tell you. If you're in Christ, if you're one of God's people, you're safe in all circumstances. Because here's the truth. The worst the world can throw at you is death. And ultimately, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass that which is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who has given us victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does this mean for you? It means Jesus has got you. The worst the world can throw at you is stingless. It's powerless over you. You can rise above it. You can face all difficulties secure in the knowledge that God is for you. He has got you. He loves you. Regardless of circumstance, regardless of the mess, Jesus loves you. And that's good news for bad people. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we thank you that he has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. That he lived the life that we have not lived. That he died the death that we deserve and he has raised to life that we might live. He calls all people everywhere now to repent and believe the gospel. And by your grace, we pray that you would grant us faith. To trust him and therefore be able to stand in all circumstances secure And our great God and saviour Jesus Christ. Help us to love him. Help us to trust him. And Lord cause us to glorify him. We pray in his beautiful name. Amen.